0: The big idea of this passage is that after death, the proud receive torment, but those who repent enter paradise forever. when we die. Some new research has come out that researchers monitoring a man with uh, they're monitoring his brain waves, he had a heart attack and died while they were monitoring. This is a new revelation. This is a new discovery because this has not been done, or at least they claim it has never been done before, measuring the brain waves while someone passes away. Researchers hope this will shed some light on what happens when we die. But even as they look at the results from this, There's not a lot of conclusions, there's speculation, but we really don't know that much. What happens to the brain when we die? I think a more important question that many of us ask and wonder is, what happens after we die? What happens to us when we die? The writer of Ecclesiastes said that God has put eternity into every man's heart. And that makes sense as we think about and and consider, we recognize that many people want to know what happens when we die. We're not concerned about a printout of our brainwaves, but we want to know what happens to our soul. Where do we go? And can we really know anything about what happens when we die? Can we really know for sure? Our passage today is Luke chapter 16, verse 14 to 31 we'll start in verse 14 and go to the end of the chapter and in this passage jesus tells us what we need to know about what happens after we die what happens to our souls, what does eternity at least start out looking like so let's read the passage with this in mind and then we'll study it closer please follow along as i read luke chapter 16 verse 14 to 31 the pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced. If someone should rise from the dead. This is God's Word. And I believe the main point, or the big idea of this passage, is that after death, the proud receive torment, but those who repent enter paradise forever. We'll look at three points this morning. First, the pride of the Pharisees. And then we'll look at the result of that pride. And finally paradise, which is for those who repent. So the first point is the pride of the Pharisees. Verse 14 to 18, we see here that Jesus is addressing, responding to the Pharisees in verse 15. But verse 14, we see the the Pharisees have been listening to what Jesus said. Previous to this section, we saw the parable about uh, where Jesus talked about lovers of money. He ended in verse 13, talking about you can either serve God or money, but you cannot serve both. And we see that the Pharisees, the writer tells us, they are lovers of money. They are serving money instead of God. They are not followers of Jesus, and they are not actually truly following God, even though they claim to. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were supposed to be keepers of the law. They were the experts of what we call the Old Testament. They were supposed to keep the law and also instruct God's people on how to keep it. But we see they're lovers of money. Luke, the writer of this book, helps us understand that they were not serving God, but serving themselves. They were proud as lovers of money. They wanted to gain security, a sense of accomplishment, purpose. They wanted to have worth because of their money and their career. A lover of money is tempted to look to these things, for, to, to look to money for security. And we are too. We are tempted to be lovers of money. Many of us have thought, if, if only I had just a little more salary, it would be nice if I just had a little, little bit more coming in. Many times we can be stressed about retirement or kids' college funds. We might get mad or depressed when we have to pay for something that's unexpected. I wasn't planning to have this thing I need to pay for. Often we want to buy trendy things, something that's fashionable, so that people will like us or notice us, or they might want to be like us. Those are all indications that we're also tempted to be lovers of money. This is the first pride of the Pharisees that Jesus Points out, or that's pointed out by Luke, that we see in this passage from the Pharisees that that they were lovers of money. We also see that they ridiculed Jesus. Verse 14 says, After they the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed Jesus. They're distancing themselves from Jesus and his teaching. To ridicule Jesus is to say something like, This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. We're the experts on God's law, and he doesn't understand. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We've seen a progression through Luke how they continue to distance themselves from Jesus. At first, they ask questions similar to the curious crowd. Then they start to challenge Jesus, asking him pointed questions, trying to trip him up. Now they're openly making fun of and pushing Jesus away, saying he is not legitimate. He should not be a teacher. That's what it looks like to ridicule Jesus. The third way of the pride of the Pharisees that we see is that they want to justify themselves before men. This is verse 15 where Jesus goes directly to the Pharisees. He says to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. The key word here is to justify. To justify something is to prove or to show to have evidence that it is right or it is righteous. So they want to show that they are right before God, but they do this before other people. So they compare with other people. We are better than the tax collectors. We are better than the sinners, and so therefore we have God's blessing. We are more godly or more righteous than these other people. But it's in arrogance, it's in pride that they're comparing with other people. They want to show off and think that they are okay, think that they have a right relationship with God because they live better on the outside than other people. But Jesus says that this is a false justification. This is not real because he said, but God knows your hearts. He adds, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So the Pharisees are trying to do what's exalted among men. They want to do things that make others look up to them. Oh, they give money or they pray so loudly and so nicely. I wish I prayed like they prayed. But Jesus is saying that that's an abomination. That means it's gross, it's detestable toward God in His sight. He knows that it comes from a place of pride, from a heart of pride, not from a humble heart because He can see on the inside. He can see their hearts. We see in verse 16 and 17 as well. Look there with me. Jesus continues, "...the law and the prophets were until John, but since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void." So here Jesus is saying that the Pharisees do not understand the Scriptures correctly. They're misinterpreting Scripture. We know from earlier in Luke that they rejected John and his message. They did not want to be baptized with the others. And John was baptizing in a a baptism of repentance. And repentance takes humbleness. There's no pride in repentance. Therefore, these Pharisees are very prideful. They don't understand that John was sent by God. And they especially don't understand that Jesus has been sent by God and that Jesus is Himself God. They're rejecting John and rejecting Jesus. And it shows that they're very prideful, thinking of themselves. The part where it says that uh, at the end of verse 16, it says, everyone forces his way into it, forcing his way into the kingdom of God. I think there's a maybe a better way to translate this. Uh, the it means something more like people are urged to enter in. There is a there's a a push or a rush to enter into the kingdom. It's now available to be entered in, and so there's an urgency. It it the the actual language points to the urgency. It's not people are not forcing their forcing their way into an, into the kingdom of God by some illegitimate way or. Um, taking it by force, it means know that, that people are urgent to get into the kingdom of God. So we see the importance of Jesus' message, of the kingdom of God. It's urgent. We should enter into the kingdom of God through repentance without delay. But here the Pharisees are delaying. Their pride is keeping them from the humbleness they need to Repent. And then in verse 18, this seems a a bit odd or misplaced. Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. It seems like a random bit of advice thrown in to what Jesus is saying. But I think the point is, Jesus is saying that the Pharisees, what the Pharisees are doing with Scripture is wrong. They're misusing Scripture for their own desires. This is an example of how they're misusing Scripture to get what they want. The Pharisees want to be able to divorce or allow people to divorce their wives and marry other women. Now, the, This uh, divorce is... Uh, allowed for, there's some allowance for it in the Old Testament, but we know from Scripture that God hates divorce. He is opposed to divorce. But here, they've made a way in the law that allows for men and women to divorce, to leave marriages, and to be remarried with no consequence, with it not being a big deal. And Jesus says, no, this is not the case. This is not okay. He's bringing to light the ugliness of their hearts that they would want to allow for divorce in order to gain their own desires, to get what they want. They are not near God by allowing this to go on. They are not in God's kingdom. They are not believers. And it's indicated by their allowance of this, making a way for divorce to be totally fine. Now, we don't want to overlook that this passage speaks specifically about divorce. Jesus is teaching about divorce, but as an example of the pride of the Pharisees. We know from other passages in Scripture that God is opposed to divorce. And divorce is not a light matter. But divorce is serious because it's separating a one flesh union that God joined together. But Jesus is not putting down here those who have been divorced. This passage is not intended to shame anyone who has been through divorce or to say that a divorced man or a divorced woman is somehow unclean or unfit to be a believer or somehow tainted or less than others. The message here is that divorce cannot be a tool to gain what we want from this world. The Pharisees must have been allowing themselves and others to divorce for little or no reason, and then to remarry as freely as they wanted. But Jesus is saying, no, we should take marriage seriously, and we should take marriage as serious as God does. He says it's joining of two people into one. Now, the Bible says specifically that divorce is permitted when there's adultery involved. It also does not give room to tolerate abuse within a marriage. And it's possible that abuse could lead to divorce. But for all marriages, we should hold all marriages with honor before God, wanting to honor Him. And we should be careful to respect God and His views on marriage and divorce. So we want to honor God and respect Him as we talk about marriage, and even when divorce is considered. Husbands and wives, for us, the, the word divorce, the D word in our marriage should never enter the conversation. It should not be used as a threat to get your way. It should not even be used as a joke, something to joke about. Even joking about divorce can be hurtful and disrespectful to others, to your spouse, and especially to our Heavenly Father. So we want to be careful how we talk about divorce. We want to hold marriage in, with high regard, just as God does. Now, before we go on to trash the Pharisees and their pride, we need to recognize that we are tempted and capable of, of being just as proud as the Pharisees and doing the exact same things that we see them doing here. So we don't want to ridicule them, but we want to examine ourselves. Are we full of pride like the Pharisees are full of? And where are we tempted to be prideful? Because even if we're not full of pride as we see them, we're still tempted in many of the same ways. We're tempted to pursue money and the security, the status, the power that money brings. Money is very tempting, especially in the city we live in, because everyone is pursuing money. Most people we're around are lovers of money, and it's very easy for us to justify doing the same thing. We should also consider God's approval or justification. So how are we justified? How are we made right? Galatians 2 says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we should be reminded that it is not what we do that makes us right with God, but it is faith in Jesus. And it's Jesus' blood that allows us to be right, that brings us into a right relationship with God. So true justification truly being right before God is through faith in Jesus. It's not following laws and following rules. We want to reject religion as the means to being right with God. The Pharisees were involved in religion, outward expression of rules and laws, legalism. Looking good on the outside, following rules on the outside, but their hearts were far from the Lord. And we have that temptation as well. We don't want to give in to religion or the legalism that says we need to look a certain way, that we need to follow certain rules. But we want to be concerned with heart change, that God would have our hearts and that others would also be, their hearts would be changed as well. So our desire, our concern should be for our hearts and the heart of others around us. And we should be considered We should consider the heart change, not the outside works, not the following of rules first. Following rules is important. We still follow rules, but the first and the most important part is the change of a heart. We want to follow God's rules because our heart has changed. Another way that we can stumble here and be like the Pharisees is a misuse of Scripture. There's many opportunities for us to misuse Scripture, and many influences from our world today that misuse Scripture. For example, the prosperity gospel, the message that says, God wants you to be happy. Now, God wants the best for us, but when we say God wants us to be happy, that usually means happy right now, doing what I desire. That kind of thinking is what the Pharisees were doing when they allowed divorce. God wants you to be happy, so divorce your wife and marry someone else. That's the message, and we see that that is a wrong message. That is a misuse, a misunderstanding of Scripture. There's a temptation for us to do this, even to drift slowly into this. Sometimes we think about If we're doing well, then that means God is pleased with us. The good things that we have is because God is happy with us. Or the bad things that are going on in our life is because God is not happy with us. And that's a misuse, a misunderstanding of Scripture. We know that many times we suffer and we deal with things so that we would rely more on God. It is actually His purpose to draw us to Him. And that's why we go through bad things. I think another way that we can misuse Scripture is in our marriages. There can be times where one spouse thinks that the other one does not deserve our love. A husband might say that his wife does not deserve his love because she will not submit to him. Or maybe he even tells her, you must submit to me. Maybe a wife says that her husband does not deserve her respect because of some past sin or something that he has done before. This is a misuse and a misunderstanding of God's Word. God does not call husbands to love their wives if their their wives deserve it. And God does not call wives to respect their husbands, if their husbands deserve it. Because none of us deserve it. No husband deserves the respect of their wife. And no wife deserves the love of their husband. We love and respect out of love and submission to God. We love with the love that He gives, not because one or the other deserves it or not. So we must be careful not to misuse or miss understand Scripture and apply it in a way that serves our desires but is very prideful. Now we see after Jesus calls out the Pharisees here, He shines a light on their pride and then He tells a story. He tells a story of where this pride leads. What does it lead to after death? Let's look again at this parable At verse nineteen. In verse nineteen, let's start there. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. So the first character is the rich man. And then we're introduced to in verse twenty, Lazarus. It says, At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we have a rich man. And the rich man in this parable represents the Pharisees. And really, not just the Pharisees, but all unbelievers. And we saw that the Pharisees are proud. So point number two we're going to look at specifically the rich man in this parable. Point number two is that Hades is for the proud. Hades is for the proud. We're going to get into what is, what is Hades. You'll see it written in verse 23. Hades is for the proud. And when I talk about the proud, I do I am referencing back to the Pharisees. But pride can show up in different ways. Proud here means the self-focused. We can have a too high view of ourselves, and that's pride. We can also have a too low view of ourselves, self-loathing. And that's also pride. It looks like self-loathing, hating ourselves, but it's still self-focused. So when I say Hades is for the proud, I could say Hades is for the self-focused. So in verse 19 and 20, we see The disparity, we see the distance between these two men, at least in their lifestyle. They're very close together physically. Lazarus is at the gate of the rich man, but their lifestyles could not be any different. The rich man is dressed in nice clothes, and he's feasting every single day. He is super rich. He's the top 1%. Where Lazarus is super poor... He's probably crippled because he's just at the gate. He's forgotten, he's gross. He's the bottom 1% of the world. And we see in verse 22 that they both pass away. The rich man is buried. And then he finds himself in Hades. In verse 23 it says he was 22 says the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment. So he finds himself in this place called Hades. What is Hades? The word Hades in the New Testament is connected to the word Sheol, 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 in the Old Testament. Now there's some debate on the details of what these places are, how they're related to heaven and hell. And there's also debate including... Where Jesus went when He died? Did He go into hell, the place of torment? I can't get into all the details with that, but I'd like to talk about it briefly so that we have some context for what's being talked about here. It seems that Hades and Sheol are the the same same place, two words for the same place, but they have two parts. One is for those who are unrepentant, those who are self-focused, those who are proud. That's represented by where the rich man is. And there's another part that's called Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. Other places it also could be referred to as paradise. And this is those who are repentant, those who believe, have faith in God. We see this in Luke 23 when Jesus tells the repentant thief on the cross next to him, today... You will be with me in paradise. He's talking about this place where Lazarus is now. And many believe, and I believe as well, that Jesus went to the paradise side of Hades to retrieve those, to to get those who were waiting for salvation. We see this in Psalm 16. The psalmist talks about not being left to... Uh, left and not abandoned my soul in Sheol. So Jesus goes to that place and retrieves those who are believers and bring them to heaven. Now there's a hel- helpful article from Desiring God that unpacks this more and explains it more. I can share the link in our groups and the email a little bit later. And then we'll talk about paradise a little bit more in point number three. But from this point passage, we can see that for sure that Hades, this place Hades, is a place of torment for the rich man. Look at verse 23. It says, in Hades, he, the the rich man, being in torment. Verse 24, he describes himself as being in anguish. In verse 25, Abraham confirms that he is in the place of anguish. And then in verse 28, the rich man wants to spare his brothers from this place of torment. Now, a dictionary definition of both torment and anguish is severe physical or mental suffering. Severe suffering. Have you ever suffered Imagine that, but it never stops. To the point where not even a drop of water would bring relief. As we see the rich man asking for from Lazarus. I was trying to understand how desperate that would be, that even a drop of water would feel like relief. I thought about one time driving through a big city when it was pouring rain. One of the heaviest rains I'd ever seen, tons of water. My wipers are going full blast. I'm gripping the steering wheel tight, trying to make sure I stay in my lane. And I remember at some point going underneath a bridge. There was a a road overhead and I went under the bridge and instantly it was quiet. For about two seconds as I drove under the bridge, it was peaceful and quiet. The road above was blocking the noise of the rain hitting my car, and there was some relief. There was a little bit of hope. I was reminded that, oh yeah, the whole world is not, it's not raining everywhere in the whole world. There's places where there's not rain, and this will end. It's not going to last forever. There are peaceful places. There is hope. But for the proud, for those who are in Hades in torment, there is not that ray of hope, that little bit of hope, the reminder that this will end. For us on earth who are believers, when we suffer, and sometimes it feels overwhelming, we can have that hope. We have that hope that it will end. But Hades is not like that. It is only torment. It is only anguish forever and ever. That's why a single drop would bring some relief. And we see in verse 30, uh, 23 that he's in Hades, he's in torment, and he lifts up his eyes. I think the writer is giving us the image of him being lower down than Abraham and Lazarus. Now, we might think that this lifting up his eyes could be similar. We wonder maybe, is this similar to him, the younger son in the parable? of the prodigal son, he comes to his senses. Do you remember that? He comes to his senses and he realizes, I should go back to my father. And I wondered as I read this, is is this similar? Is the rich man doing this? But the lifting up his eyes is not a move of repentance. But we see that he continues in pride. Even as he sees that he is in torment, he lifts up his eyes. It says, And he saw... Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And then notice what he does next. He asks for mercy, but he says, Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He's still thinking of himself. He doesn't move toward repentance, he doesn't say, I was wrong for what I did. He doesn't apologize to Lazarus for not paying attention or never giving him anything. No, he requests that Lazarus come and serve him. He says, I'm in anguish, send Lazarus to serve me. He's still concerned with himself. The pride in torment continues. In verse 25, Abraham points out the the great reversal that they have experienced. He tells the rich man that you received good things in your lifetime, and Lazarus, his like manner, in like manner, bad things. But now Lazarus is comforted, and you are in anguish. There's a great reversal, and he goes on to say there's a great divide. It's been reversed, and there's this large divide between them. But in verse 27, we see the rich man continues. He asks for another favor. He asks for Lazarus to do something else for him. Surely, Lazarus needs to serve the rich man, he thinks. He asks that Lazarus would go back and talk to his brothers, would go to the rich man's father's house. Verse 28, he says, For I have five brothers, so that... They may, that he, that is Lazarus, may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. It's ironic that he would ask so much of Lazarus, these favors, and yet he never did anything for Lazarus when they were alive. Abraham responds in verse 29, he says, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He's saying they have what they need to recognize their need for a Savior. They have Moses and the prophets. They already should be able to see that they are sinful. They have what they need to believe. But verse 30, the rich man again continues to argue. He says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He says that, no, somebody raising from the dead will convince them. That will be the important part. That will be the ticket. They'll understand then if somebody comes back from the dead. And then look at verse 31. Do you think there's a bit of foreshadowing and irony in this verse? 31 says, And he, that is Abraham, said to the rich man, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now we remember that Jesus is specifically talking to the Pharisees. They're represented by the rich man in this story. They're the experts in Moses and the prophets. And Jesus also knows that He's going to rise from the dead. So He's saying to the Pharisees specifically, very pointedly, if you cannot understand the Scriptures and recognize that I am the Christ, you will never understand. Even if they see Christ crucified, and they see Him raised from the dead, they will not believe, they will not understand. And it's their pride that is keeping them from understanding, from repenting. Notice how the rich man never says he's wrong. He never repents in torment. He's still in the same pride that he had when he died. It seems that the pride of sinners will continue even in torment. Other places in Scripture it says that there will be some at the end of time who will say, Jesus, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name we did these things for you, and Jesus will reject them and say, I never knew you. People may come to this place of torment and say, I I don't deserve this. I wasn't that bad. I went to church. I was a member of a church. They might say, I was a minister. I was a missionary. I was baptized. Why am I here? And on and on. But it's all a place of Pride of self-focused, of unrepentance. It's interesting to notice, too, that, that the rich man was not surprised by his position. He didn't say, I didn't know. He didn't say, I had no idea this was coming. He wasn't surprised by his position in torment. But his response was to send someone to his brother's to help them to know that this was true. He apparently didn't take God's Word seriously. He was distracted and consumed with himself instead of listening to God when God spoke through Moses and the prophets. I think for us today, we should see the ugliness of pride. Pride in our hearts is as ugly as... As the description of Lazarus in this parable, lame, starving, covered with sores that dogs come to lick. That is the ugliness of our pride, and it's destructive. And for many, for all who do not repent, it will lead us to torment. Anyone who does not repent, Hades is for the proud. The pride that will keep us from repentance will lead anyone who is kept from repentance because of pride, it will lead them to torment, to Hades. Another thing that we should consider is that our hearts should break for lost people. We don't want to ridicule or judge someone who is proud now. Our heart should break for them. They're on the same path as this rich man, and they don't realize it. So instead of looking up to rich people, people that have the things that we want, we should pray for them. We should ask God to humble them now, before it's too late. Because there's no humbling after we die. There's no change of condition after we die. We must repent before we pass away. And we want our hearts to break for the lost, that we would pray for them earnestly, that God would change them, that God, God would bring them to a place to repent. Now, let's look at the parable one last time and focus this time on Lazarus. The point number three is paradise and its citizens. Paradise and its citizens. Who is in paradise? First, we notice in verse 20 that Lazarus has a name, but we didn't see a name for the rich man. We keep calling him the rich man. He has no name. This already assigns value. Jesus is assigning value to this man in the story even though he's rich he assigns value by naming him and we see the depth of Lazarus' suffering in verse 20 and 21 he's poor he's crippled laid at the gate of the rich man and he's covered with sores verse 21 says he's starving he he desires the leftovers from the rich man's table But he's not even capable of keeping stray dogs away, but they come to lick his sores. I think if Lazarus was at the gate of our apartment complex, we would be repulsed. It would take a lot of grit to not recoil or step away or draw back when we see him. Now when they both die, we see that there's no mention of Lazarus being buried, but he's carried by angels to Abraham's side. The image of upward, not going downward like the rich man, into the grave, into torment in Hades, but he's up, going up, carried by angels. And he goes to Abraham's side, which again is sometimes called Abraham's bosom. And this, the, what's communicated here by Abraham's bosom is not just that He's been given a hug, but this is the best seat at a large banquet. There's a a banquet feast going on, and the best seat is to be at the, the bosom of the host. So think about the parable of the prodigal son. When the younger son comes home and the father throws the big party, you could say that the son was at the father's bosom. He was the honored guest. He had the best place at the feast. And that's now where Lazarus is. He's in the best place. He's honored. Now, I mentioned earlier that this is, this is not heaven. This is the, the place of the dead. This is Sheol or Hades, most likely, as we see in Psalms and, and other places in the Old Testament. But we see, too, from this passage that this place is Paradise. There's a feast going on, and Abraham is there. This is where God's people would have waited for Jesus to pay the penalty for their sin. They're waiting for Jesus to come and to die, and then come to them to take them to heaven. But the feast has already started. It's like a pre-party party. They're already in paradise. They're already getting ready. Now, while they were alive, the rich man and Lazarus were completely opposite in every way. Drastically different. And now we see they're still drastically different, in drastically different places. Torment for the rich man and paradise for Lazarus. So how did this happen? Why does Lazarus go to paradise We understand how the rich man goes to torment because of his pride, but how does Lazarus go to paradise? Well, look at how Jesus narrates the rich man's argument in verse 30. Verse 30, he says, the rich man's replying to Abraham. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Here, the the rich man, or Jesus, in telling this story, shows that Repentance is what's important. Repentance is the key. They need to repent to not go to torment and to enter into paradise. Repentance is a humbling of our hearts. There is no pride in repentance. We cannot repent and remain prideful, they cannot go together. Repentance is turning from sin and believing in Jesus as Savior. Jesus sums up the whole gospel in Mark 1 by saying, Repent and believe. We repent by confessing that we are sinners, and we believe by placing our faith in Jesus as our Savior. Lazarus apparently had repented of his sin and believed that God would send a Savior. In verse 31, Jesus makes it clear that Moses and the prophets are not enough, excuse me, are enough to know that God is faithful and that he will save his people. The Pharisees should have known this at this time. They were Old Testament experts already, but their refusal to repent is keeping them from the kingdom of God. So, friends, the message today is do not refuse to repent. Pride of the Pharisees, which can so often be found in us, that pride is a ticket to the place of torment and anguish. So do not miss the opportunity you have now to repent and believe in Jesus. Notice how Jesus ends the parable with Abraham saying in verse 31 that if, you do not, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Uh, friends, we have Moses and the prophets, and we also have Jesus, who died and raised from the dead. We can know Jesus. We have all the information that we need. We have what we need in order to repent and believe in Jesus. And we must be reminded that repentance and faith are both gifts, gifts from God. Back in Luke 15, we, you may remember the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. In those parables, we saw clearly how repentance is initiated. It's started and carried out by God. He's the one who brings us to repentance. And so we trust God to do that. In people around us. We don't know who He will bring to repentance. We hope that it is many. And Christians, for us, we know that we are secure as God's children. The Bible tells us that we are secure as his children and we are destined. We are on our way to paradise with him when we die. But we must consider: does our lives, do our lives look like we're on our way to paradise? Galatians 2 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the life, it says, the life I now live in the flesh, that means this life now, I live by faith in the Son of God. That's how our lives should look, living by faith. One way we live as those who are on our way to paradise is to remember that suffering that we experience now is temporary. We have hope that it will end. There is a place reserved for us at the table where there is no suffering, there is no pain, and there is no sadness. The suffering we experience now is as worse as it gets. It's as bad as it gets. And it gets bad sometimes. For some, it's bad most of the time. But it will end. As believers, we know that it will end. Quarantine, lockdown, disease, death, it will all end. And for the believer, it will end and we will enter into paradise. As we live out Being those who are on our way to paradise, we also can serve the Lord without desperation for saving ourselves. This means that we can serve the Lord without thinking of justifying ourselves. We obey God and we love Him and we serve Him because He loves us and because we love Him, not because we want to look good for others around us. We can serve and give with joy and gladness out of love for God and for His people because He first loved us. When we think about, when we consider and remember that we are heading to paradise, we don't have the pressure of looking like the perfect Christian or the perfect person. And also when we have our our view on paradise, the troubles of the world seem to shrink away. Money and power and popularity, pleasure, all seem less appealing and less important when we look up. When we look up to God and to the eternity that He has promised for us. This paradise is not just good feelings and paradise, but this is a banquet, a feast, a party that we have with God Himself. He's promised to dwell with us. This is His paradise that He is inviting us into to share with Him. So I started off today talking about researchers and scientists who know a little bit more information about what happens to our brains in our last seconds. But they still don't really know what happens when we die. But instead of looking at science, we want to look at what the Bible says about what happens after this life And here we see that Jesus shows us that we have all the information we need to know that pride does not end, but it continues into torment. And that paradise is reserved for those who repent and believe in Jesus and for those who repent only. I really love the chorus of the song we sang earlier. We Will Feast in the House of Zion. Where it says, We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things, we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. I want to challenge you to take your bulletin with you. This week, listen to that song. Sing it. Learn it. And let's look forward to the feast in paradise that we have with our God. I really hope to see you there.